This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Carolyn Pertle, who is the program director at the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, one of my favorite places. She earned her master's degrees in theology and sacred music at Notre Dame and also a master's degree in music at K-State, Kansas State University, where she received a bachelor's degree in music as well. Uh, she's written a book with Ave Maria Press, part of that engaging Catholicism series, that the partnership between the McGrath Center for Church Life and uh, Ave Maria Press. This one is called 10 Ways to Pray, a Catholic Guide for Drawing Closer to God. You can get it over at AveMariaPress.com. Carolyn, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's nice to be here. Partially because it's my own journey. I love that journey, but from the arts and from uh, this pursuit of beauty and purity and, and expression— and finding that interconnection between that and the work that we do in the church. Anyone who's been involved in the arts knows that when you first say, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to go get my degree in music, it's often met with a little bit of skepticism. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like saying, I'm going to be, you know, the the kid going to, to Little League and say, I'm going to be a professional athlete when I grow up. Mm -hmm. There's just not necessarily a whole lot of... Um, shall we say, career opportunities for those necessarily with degrees in music. And yet there is such a need for it in the church. So I, I'm curious as to your journey, whether or not you always had in mind this, this connection between the arts and faith as you started that, or if that was kind of a later addition. Yeah. So when I was growing up, you know, as a kid taking piano lessons um, and growing up in Wichita, Kansas, I was always... Um, pretty attuned, I guess, if I can use that word, to um, the connection between faith and music in particular, especially. Um, I went to a Catholic school basically from kindergarten through senior year in high school. And by the time I was in sixth and seventh grade, I was cantering pretty consistently. And then in high school, I was accompanying for school liturgies. And so um, that connection between my training as a musician and having this sense of vocation and putting my gifts at the service of God and at the service of other people was always pretty strongly instilled in me. Um, and then when I got to college, you know, it was more of the same. It was um, cantering at my Newman Center and singing with the choir and playing for mass. Um, and it just has always been a very um, a natural sort of connection for me, um, this connection between the beauty of creation and the beauty of the faith. Um, and so I've always been very, very grateful um, that God made me a musician and that God put me in a set of circumstances where I was able to cultivate those gifts and also able to use them in service of the church. Um, as I got older and, and you know, decided, was trying to decide what to do with my music degree, um, my initial thought was actually I wanted to be a film composer. Um, and so I got my master's degree in music theory and composition from K-State. And I thought, you know, this this is another way of using the beauty of music to help tell stories, to help people make an emotional connection to a story that they're seeing on film. Um, but as I, I thought about it further, you know, it's a very competitive um, field to get into. And it just, um, you know, didn't allow me to maintain that connection between music and my faith and 
um, I think God knew that I was struggling with that decision because um, right before I finished my master's in theory and composition, I heard that Notre Dame was starting up or restarting rather uh, their program in sacred music. And mm-hmm. so I thought, oh, that seems like a better fit. Um, <laughs> and through, you know, the grace of providence and um, the the gifts of people who have really nurtured and cultivated me as an artist and as a theologian, I wound up in the McGrath Institute um, and have been able to really, um, again, use the gifts and the things that I love um, most in the world to help people think about how those things draw us closer to God. Mm-hmm. The 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 interchange. I, I, I think that it's. Um, I think the quote is attributed to Augustine, that he who sings prays twice. Yes. And there's there's something in the the emotiveness or in the um, the feeling that comes through through singing for me anyway that that I think very closely aligns with the feeling that I get when I'm in silent contemplative prayer. There's, there's mm-hmm. a connection. It's almost like um, the, the body is because it is engaged in the prayer in a different way is connecting to that prayer in a different way. Uh, perhaps this is the best way to say it for me growing up as a Protestant, most of the prayers that I experienced were uh, they began in the mind. Uh, they were intellectual prayers. I had to formulate an extemporaneous prayer. I had to think about what I was thinking, and then I could express that with words. And so there's something about, and, and of course, we're going to get into the other ways to pray as well as listed here in the book, but there's something about beginning that prayer in a different place, that it's not, that I don't have to formulate the thought. It's not intellectual. And so uh, in some ways, the, the repetitive prayers that we have, those contemplative prayers, uh, whether it be through the rosary or through silent contemplative prayer, they begin in a different place than the intellect. And I think they engage a different part of us than the intellect. Yeah. I think what's really incredible about music and about singing prayer is is that it's a very, it's a holistic experience, right? So you mentioned the emotive quality of music and how it, it just helps you feel things very deeply. And so it integrates our minds and our hearts, but it also integrates our bodies. If you're singing out loud, you know, you have you have to engage your body. You have to breathe differently than you do when you speak. Um, and so it, it really um, ties in who we are as human beings and it, and it knits those things together, I think, in a, in a way that couldn't be anything but beautiful um, because it, it just really helps us to connect with God and from, as you said, from a deeper place. Um, I, there's a quote that I love from, from Benedict the 16th, um, Joseph Ratzinger. He was writing as Ratzinger at the time. This is before he became Pope. But he said, um, when human beings come into contact with the living God, mere speech is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that has really resonated with me throughout my study and throughout my life as a liturgical musician is that at a certain point, um, words alone just don't cut it, you know. Um, and and I think apart from silence, um, which is such a pure expression of communion with God, I think music and singing our prayers is is the next best best thing, really. Mm-hmm. We often have um, a specific conception of prayer. Like we have, 
we have experience with maybe when we're growing up with a, a very particular kind. So prayer at bedtime, prayer at meals, and maybe we did a family rosary. So, uh, so we have this concept of prayer as a monolith, as this thing, this activity that we do. And in this book, 10 Ways to Pray, uh, available on, again, Ave Maria Press, you challenge that that assumption. And for people who have only had that one experience to pray, you're saying there's more to prayer than this than this concept that you have of it. And you take us through uh, praying the liturgy, praying with devotions, what it means to pray throughout the day or with scripture and Alexio Divina capacity. Uh, and then you go into um, some things that maybe are less commonly expressed. And what I love about this is that you you explain it, or even just in the title of it, you give it a title that's different than what we have heard it called so that we can reestablish our connection or our understanding of it. So for instance, we, we've probably all heard of the idea of praying the examine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to think of that not necessarily as as prayer, but as self-reflection. And so you call it praying through experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we, maybe we've heard of Visio Divina, but you take that a step further in talking about praying through beauty, not only with the eyes, but also with the ears and also with other other ways that we encounter beauty. Praying through the body. And I love this one, and we're going to talk about it more in depth, but talking about not only fasting, but also pilgrimage as a form of prayer, which is just not something I ever would have considered as prayer. Um, Praying through a sacred word, praying through silence, and praying through action. So before we get into any one of those individually, I'm curious if this was something that was proposed to you, or is this something that this broad idea of prayer being a holistic thing, is that something that um, you were uh, approached with and did research for for this book, or was this something that was already internalized that that was an outgrowth? Yeah, so it's funny. I I um the origin story, I guess, if you want to call it that, for this book um, was rooted in a series of prayer stations that some colleagues of mine developed at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, um, and they were basically trying to teach young college students and recent college graduates about the different traditions of prayer that exist in Christianity because. So many of them are coming from precisely the background that you described. You know, they go to church, they pray before meals, they pray the rosary, they uh, pray at bedtime. And and those are all wonderful things. I would never say to somebody, no, you shouldn't pray the rosary. In fact, I wrote a book on the rosary as well. So, you know, I love the rosary and I love and I think praying at bedtime, especially as with small children, is a wonderful way to to kind of cultivate the practice of prayer and turning to God at certain times of day. Um, but this, you know, these prayer stations included things like the examine, included things like um, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy or praying through action um, and Lexio Divina and Visio Divina. And um, so they basically provided very simple introductions um, to these practices of prayer that have existed in many cases for centuries um, within the church. And some of them, you know, you think about Lexio Divina goes back almost practically to the beginning of the, ch- the church. And so um, it was a way to um, introduce people or perhaps refamiliarize them with these gifts of the tradition in, in ways that, again, were, were perhaps new or coming at them from a different angle, like you've said, you know, thinking about the examine, not necessarily as a set form of prayer, but rather as a conversation with God that is rooted in our experience 
and that is guided by particular stages or steps that St. Ignatius um, sort of, you know, concretized for us. Um, and, and you know, thinking about Lexio Divina as a way of encountering God through the gift of his word, through the gift of scripture, and allowing the scriptures to speak to our hearts um, in a way that, you know, so often in our prayer life, we might think of it as me telling God what I need, what I want, and what I don't want. And mm-hmm. certainly those things are, are part and parcel of the prayer life. But I, I I know for myself, I tend to talk a lot more than I listen when I talk to yeah. God. And so Lexio Divina is a really beautiful way to encourage that posture of listening um, and to really allow you know, that prayer to become our own. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Um, so this, this, these prayer stations um, were really developed by my colleagues. And um, so I was approached by, um, by my supervisors and by the folks at Ave Maria because I had helped work on a resource that we did that was, again, rooted in these prayer stations. Mm-hmm. Um, we called it the Prayer Enrichment Guide. And it was just a really simple kind of free ebook that was made available um, and that talked about seven of these traditions. And so um, when they came to me, they said, you know, we'd really like to make it an even 10. <laughs> and so we, we talked a little bit about what that would look like. And um, I did some additional research um, to really flesh out some of the things that we'd done in the prayer stations, but also flesh out the new additions to that, you know, going from the seven to the 10 traditions. And, um, you know, that's how the, the book really sort of developed and came about. And um, I realized in the writing process, you know, how, how, wonderful it is that we have so many different traditions of prayer um, because we are so different as people and every single person is called to a unique and and really unrepeatable relationship with God. And so these traditions of prayer um, allow for a relationship that, that speaks to us, you know, exactly as we are and yet allows us to grow in our relationship with God and allows us to really tap into those things that, and those desires, and those tendencies, um, and those you know, kind of aptitudes that are gifts of God. Um, you know, God wants to have a relationship with us that makes sense for who we are as His sons and daughters. And um, so, I think these traditions of prayer are are ways that God has given us to be able to do just that. Mm-hmm. You're bringing up the term here, relationship. And relationship with God, and throughout Scripture, there are a couple of of metaphors that are used to talk about that relationship. Um, one of them is being a body, right? That we're all the body of Christ. One of them, as you mentioned, is is childhood adoption. That uh, Paul uses that pretty thoroughly. Uh, the other one that's used all throughout Scripture, all the way into the Old Testament, is the one of marriage. And Ooh. and when I think about my relationship with God and the sense of the way I think about my relationship with my spouse, I come to realize that I in, I interact with my spouse more than just through an expression of communication. God, here are the things that I want. Here are the things that I need. Here are the things that I don't want. Here, what's the what's the um, the to do list today? What's the laundry list? What do we have to pick up from the store? Those things are necessary for the continued operation of a relationship, but they are not the place of intimacy, typically. Mm-hmm. They're not the place where um, where the relationship happens, right? They are a, a transfer of information. Uh, and so thinking about prayer in light of 
thinking about our relationships with our spouses. I think of those those moments of nearness and closeness, those moments of problem solving, which have nothing to do with the exchange of verbal communication. Uh, and I, I think that that's often the part, both in marriage and in prayer, that gets neglected or overlooked. Or um, we maybe we think, you know, everything's going fine, but we aren't spending the time together that we otherwise would, that that time of contemplation. So uh, I'm interested in taking a look at those places in the book, those kinds of prayer practices that relate to those nonverbal mm-hmm. um, nonverbal forms of prayer books. I think we often miss those. So I want to go with you to chapter six and talk about prayer through beauty mm-hmm. and and how you experience that and where the historical tradition of that comes in. Sure. So there are three different kinds of beauty that I talk about in the book. Um, We've already kind of touched on one of them, the beauty of music. um, And then, you know, visual art is another. And then the beauty of nature itself is, is a third sort of avenue through which we can draw closer to God. Um, yeah, I I think for a lot of people, um, the beauty of nature is something that speaks volumes without saying anything, um, and you know, you can you can get a sense of the creator through the gift of creation. Um, Saint Augustine talks about this, and of course, Scripture talks about this too. When I survey the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have arranged, what is man that you bear, that you keep him in mind? Um, so we see this all through the Psalms and and the Scriptures, and and many saints talk about this. Um, and I think, I think what what this does for us is that it opens up a posture of receptivity um, when you are. Um, gifted with an experience of the beauty of nature, I think what many people describe is a sense of their own smallness in the face of something like that, but also the sense that they're part of something bigger and grander than themselves. And I think what that, if you kind of drill down below that experience, what they're really describing is this, this attitude of receiving something as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when we put ourselves in a space that is beautiful, whether, whether it's a purely natural space, like standing in front of the ocean or as a Kansas girl, I was always just really drawn to the beauty of the prairies and those wide open spaces where you can see for miles, mm-hmm. um, and, or the, you know, the mountains or a lake or whatever, wherever you find yourself being drawn to, um, that experience of placing yourself in a space of beauty is automatically, I think, something that um, invites receptivity and it invites a kind of humility because we know that we didn't do anything to create this beauty. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Um, All we can do is open ourselves up to receive it and then to give thanks for it. And so I think that that the gratitude, um, the humility, and the receptivity are things that give way very, very organically to a posture of gratitude. Mm. I, I think part of this also is recognizing the beauty that we're in the middle of that we would oftentimes overlook, 
like mm-hmm. ta- stopping in the middle of of our our direction, our uh, our plans, and taking a moment to step back and realize where it is that we are. Uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, on a kind of a mini pilgrimage with the kids, and we went to uh, Our Lady of the Annunciation at Clear Creek, it's a, a Benedictine Abbey in uh, in Oklahoma, and we were kind of walking around. We had done a, a few things and we were down by the Creek, the, the clear Creek, uh, thus the name. And we were on our way from one building to another. And I stopped the kids and we I had them sit down right by the water and just listen. And I said, okay, stop, stop the talking. No more. Just kind of sit down and we're going to sit here for 30 seconds and tell me what you hear. And each one of them heard a different sound of nature and experienced a different part of it. And then we extrapolated that a little bit and then went through that exercise a couple more times. And I think one of the the benefits of that is, you know, we had our our direction and our plans and the ideas of what we were going to do with that day. But we stopped for a moment to get out of our will and to recognize that not everything going on is part of the center of our story, right? We get to place ourselves in the middle of some other story that's going on where we are not the main character. We are the observer of everything else that's going on. And I think that that that's part of that humility of when I survey the stars, when I, when I consider the work of your hands is that recognition that we in the West don't like all that much, that we're not the center character in the story that we're part of. We get to be mm-hmm. a part of a larger story that's being directed by someone else. Yeah. I think one of the places where I run, I bump up against that is when I'm sitting in traffic. So you think about you know these places that are decidedly perhaps unlovely and unbeautiful. Um, you think about you know, being stuck in a traffic jam or being on public transportation. I lived in Chicago for a while, and I just remembered thinking in the summers – riding the L when you're surrounded by this crush of people. It's just one of the least lovely places I can think of, if if I can put it that way. Although I love Chicago and I love the L. Um, So I think another kind of play on this is to look for the beauty in the unexpected place, right? In a place that is not perhaps traditionally what we would think of if we're thinking of places that are beautiful. So, you know, we might not be in the mountains or standing by the ocean. We might be um, in a concrete jungle where there is no starlight because there's so much light pollution. Um, there is no ocean. There is no nothing except for what surrounds us. And what surrounds us might be industry and it might be tons of people. Um, and how do you look for the beauty in those situations? Um, I think learning to pay attention um, is is one of the great things that praying through beauty teaches us. Um, it teaches us to to look for these things that um, that might not immediately be what we would think of as typically beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're on the subway, um, perhaps there's a beautiful interaction between a mother and her small child that's taking place, or maybe someone has just given up their seat for a complete stranger. You know, those things are also beautiful, and God speaks to us through those things as well. So, you know, I don't want people thinking that in order to pray through beauty and to pray through the beauty of creation, they have to go somewhere else. If you can, that's great. Um, but I think one of the invitations and sometimes a challenge for us can be um, to to pray in the midst of our circumstances. I think about um, 
having an opportunity to just take a walk around your neighborhood, wherever you live. And um, it might not be a, a glamorous neighborhood. Um, it might just be a, a nice place to live, hopefully. But, you know, taking the time to do that consistently throughout the year, you're going to start to see some different things. You'll see the changing of the seasons. You'll see the way that time passes in this one particular place. And, you know, St. Benedict in his rule often talks about stability as being a real virtue and something to pursue. And so, you know, I think if people hear the phrase praying through beauty, they might think that they have to go and travel and see all of these different pilgrimage places and, you know, spend lots of money and, you know, have lots of money to spend in order to have these incredible experiences. And it's not necessarily the case because, you know, Everything that we see around us um, belongs to the created order and and therefore has the capacity to um, draw our imagination and lead us toward God if we have and if we cultivate that disposition of being able to look for it. So I think of that cultivating it where we are as an ex- exercise and a, a, a being able to say with a psalmist, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to, to the depths, you're there. And being able to remember and to recognize that there is no place that we can go where there isn't some beauty to be found. Because That's God right. is that transcendent beauty and he is there. Yeah. And even in the midst of suffering, right, God is there, right? So suffering is probably the least lovely, least beautiful thing that we can think of. And we, you know, you think about the crucifixion as this horrifying event, but because it was offered in, because it was the supreme act of love, it became this supreme source of life and of beauty. And so, you know, when we find ourselves in a space of suffering, um, we can turn to the cross, which is this great paradox um, and, and something that is decidedly, you know, not anything that anybody would choose to pursue. Um, but when we unite ourselves to Christ and we unite ourselves to that suffering, then even our sufferings um, can become something that's beautiful. If you look to the examples of some of the saints, um, it's in their sufferings that they become the most radiant. Oftentimes, I think about um, Maximilian Kolbe or um, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, um, Edith Stein, or, you know, any of the martyrs from the early years of the church. Um, You think about St. Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles. It was in this account of his martyrdom and his face looked like an angel, right? And so, um, and I can only imagine how beautiful that was. And so I think as we look for these moments and these, these spaces of beauty in the midst of our everyday lives, it's important to bear in mind that that invitation is there no matter what our daily life looks like. Um, whether we are experiencing the heights of joy or the depths of sorrow, there is an invitation there to um, whatever we're going through, conform ourselves to Christ. And in that act of sort of surrendering ourselves and uniting ourselves to Christ, it's Christ who then makes us beautiful and can transfigure the circumstances around us. Um, Even if those circumstances don't change the way that we encounter them, Um, from within our hearts, from within our souls, is what changes. 
We're talking today with Carolyn Pirtle. She's the author of the book, 10 Ways to Pray, A Catholic Guide to Drawing Closer to God. It's available on Ave Maria Press, part of the Engaging Catholicism series. There's so much more to this conversation right after this break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Carolyn Pirtle, who is Program Director at the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I have to tell you, one of the reasons I love, well, it's not one of the reasons I love, but I love the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And on top of it, there's just this long, beautiful, falling off the tongue titles that come with it, right? Uh, there's so many prepositional phrases that are part of that, and you just get to to talk for so long just getting the title out. And 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 I know that it's I, it just it brings me some small level of joy to be able to do that. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry for the long title. I, I always feel like I'm out of breath by the time I get to the end of it, but I'm glad that you enjoy it. <laughs> well, speaking of music, it feels like uh, like a musical phrase, right? You got to pace your breath out to be able to get really it all out does. at one time. Uh, it's yeah. kind of like, a, a, in some ways, like a chant. So it, it works out. <laughs> Uh, the book is for part of the Engaging Catholicism series at Ave Maria Press, a conjoint project between Ave Maria and the um, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. The book is called Ten Ways to Pray, A Catholic Guide for Drawing Closer to God. It's very accessible. Um, e- there's 10 different chapters. Each are approaching a different way to pray, and and it's not um, just an explanation. It's a, here's Here's when you might choose to pray that and why you might choose to pray that way and then how you might pray that way. So it's a really um, in-depth primer, right? You get a little overview of each of these different ways and an opportunity to experience that way of prayer. We, in the last segment, we're talking about praying through beauty. And I want to switch gears just a little bit uh, because while it is often stated, I think that it's really easy to make assumptions and then to forget to actually do it. And that's praying through the liturgy and with the liturgy. Because I don't know about you, but uh, I often get distracted when I'm at Mass. Um, I, I my, Maybe I think I have to, to engage intellectually, or maybe I am trying to uh, tell my children how to behave in Mass or help them to appropriate the different postures and way of praying. But just like prayer engages uh, multiple different senses, depending on the kind of prayer that we pray, the liturgy is meant to be a holistic experience as well, where we are engaging the mind and the heart and the body uh, and sights and sounds and everything else. Um, Specifically because of the way the liturgy is is structured, uh, we we tend to think, and maybe it's our our Western sensibilities, we tend to think as a people that if I am not actively responding, if if it's not my turn, as it were, then then I just need to wait for my turn. Uh, But there is something about being in the liturgy and participating in the liturgy that goes beyond the speaking parts that I think we sometimes miss. And so help us to to maybe get a different perspective on what it means to pray in the liturgy and how we can pray in the liturgy 
uh, when when it's not our turn to talk? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great a great question. And and first of all, I would say you know if <laughs> if you find yourself getting distracted during mass. You're definitely not alone in that boat. Um, that happens to everybody. I mean, everybody gets distracted, whether it's the mass or whether it's your personal private prayer. Um, y- distraction happens all the time. And and God knows that. And God <laughs> understands that that's how we're wired. And especially if you have small children that you're trying to wrangle in the midst of the liturgical celebration, distractions are going to happen. And that's totally fine. Um, because the gift of the liturgy is that we don't pray it alone. Um, we pray it as a member of the body. We pray it as a member of the body of Christ. And so, you know, on days when we are not particularly able to offer up the prayer that we would hope to offer up, we can rely on the the company of our brothers and sisters who are there in the pews next to us. But we can also, you know, remember that we're praying as part of the communion of saints too. Like it's not just us here on earth who are participating in this liturgy. It's the entire communion of saints. So those who have gone before us marked with the sign of faith are there praying with us too, and they're praying for us. And so, you know, those when those distractions arise, um, that's one thing that brings me great comfort is knowing that when I go to the liturgy, when I go to the mass, it's not just me. Um, it's me um, and my brothers and sisters in Christ. And my brothers and sisters in Christ are there to help me out. Just like when I'm having a really good day and I'm really ent- dialed into what's going on in the liturgy, I'm there to help somebody else out. And so it really kind of forges that community and it, indeed it forges that communion. Um, and as far as, you know, <clears throat> kind of this whole question around participation and, and what does it mean to pray, um, you know, you think about a conversation, right? If if I'm doing all the talking, then it's not a conversation, it's a monologue or a soliloquy. If you're thinking about like a Shakespearean performance, um, prayer is a conversation and the liturgy is a, a dialogical act. It's it's within a dialogical framework. And, and so many of the little pieces that happen in the liturgy are actually called dialogues, right? So when the priest says, the Lord be with you and we respond and with your spirit, called a dialogue. Um, and so that's that to me suggests that it's not just this, it's not just waiting for my turn or, um, you know, kind of sitting idly by until it's time for me to like perk up and say something or do something or, you know, go forward for communion. Um, but rather it's, it's me stepping into this performative kind of prayer the liturgy, it really is, it has a performative aspect. There are things that happen at certain times. There are gestures that happen at certain times. The priest wears certain things, so do the servers. There's certain music that we use, just like there are certain things that don't happen. And there are things that would take place outside of the liturgy. Um, and so one of the things that that we often talk about at the, at the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy is this idea of, you know, participation being something that um, isn't necessarily always external, you know, um, and we we don't have to be saying something or doing something or, um, you know, bringing something forward or moving or stand up, sit down, kneel down, whatever the case may be. Um, those things are external signs of our um, presence and of our, you know, assent to what's going on. 
I think people have probably experienced those times in the liturgy where you might be saying the words, but Mm -hmm. your mind is anywhere but on the words that you're saying. So you can be participating externally and people might think, oh, that person is, is really reverent. Gosh, they're, they're really praying this mass and your mind might be someplace completely different. Um, so there is this idea of the internal that needs to be aligned with the external and some days that's going to happen. And some days it's definitely not, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when there are those distractions that rise that, that we named before. Um, but the, but there is grace in the effort. I always like to tell anybody working in parish ministry, you know, there is grace in the effort and and some days will be better than others. And that's why the liturgy is something that happens every day throughout the world. We don't do it once expecting it to be the last time or the best time that we do this. We it's this is a life that we engage in and it's something that we have to keep showing up for and keep trying um because we're human and finite, and there won't be a point where we can stop trying. Um, we won't do it perfectly, and that's okay um, as long as we keep showing up and we keep trying and we keep trying to align our hearts to what our mouths are saying, and we keep trying to align um, our interior being with what's taking place externally. We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. You'll be just fine. <laughs> there are a number of people or roles that experience this. I think musician, the musician experiences this, the homilist, the catechist experiences this, that when we think that we have absolutely flubbed and done our worst uh, expression ever, whether that be in music or teaching or, or, or preaching, that's oftentimes when, when others will come to us and say, that was really meaningful. That was really good. That, that touched me in a way I hadn't experienced before. And I think that sometimes our own estimation of how good we did at Mass, participating or praying, uh, is sometimes inversely connected to how we actually did. Um, That maybe I think that, oh man, I was completely distracted. But in that moment of recognizing my distraction, there's a humility that comes with that. There's a connection that comes with that, that if I were doing poorly, maybe I wouldn't have even noticed that I was distracted. Mm-hmm. There's that in the desire, there is something happening in that prayer uh, that that I don't I don't think we sometimes give ourselves enough credit for. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, parents of small children, as we've said before, it's it's one of those things where, or or the musician who is very distracted because they have a million things to think about. Um, you know, it happens to everybody. And there's a prayer of Thomas Merton that I love where he says, um, I believe that Lord, I believe that the desire to please you does in fact, please you. And that is something that I hold on to with every fiber of my being, because I, there have been plenty of liturgies where I've been riddled and plagued by distractions or, you know, you think about the person that cut you off in traffic on the way to church, um, and you think, "Man, I, I, I know I'm going to mass, and I should be in a certain frame of mind." Um, and it almost feels like it's ruined, right? But that's precisely the place where God comes to meet us, and yeah. there is a humility that comes with that. And it, it basically comes when we acknowledge that God is God and we're not, um, and and that is the. That's what brings us to the liturgy in the first place is this desire to be in right relationship with God and to, to 
offer worship to the one who is God and to acknowledge that we are not God mm-hmm. and that we need God and that we need one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and that no one does this alone. And in fact, no one can do this alone. So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. you know, those are, those are the moments where the, the grace really, really is poured out. Per- permit me to go back to the, uh, the metaphor we, we hit earlier, this idea of our prayer being in somewhat like our relationship with a spouse. Um, because I think that, in our society, we tend to think before we get married, we tend to think of marriage as being this never ending romance, right? We have this picture of what marriage is as being romantic, uh, which is an unrealistic thing. I think that when we think about prayer, we have this concept of piety and holiness that we've put up on a shelf, this picture of it, that I don't think adequately summarizes what that relationship and communication is actually like. Like there might be moments of where I feel deeply connected and deeply pious, but talking about these distractions, I think in many times those distractions are part of the prayer as you you remember the person who cut you off in traffic. That's an opportunity to then say, Oh, here's this distraction. Here's this thing that I, that that's got me wound up. I'm going to now bring that and present that to God as part of that union and connection. And I think there are a number of forms of prayer, one being the liturgy, but also the rosary, uh, the walking of the labyrinth, uh, some other things like that, that are designed, and I don't know that we often catch this, but they're designed to remind us where we are. So yeah, we stand up and we sit down and we kneel. I think that those are kind of re-entry points that uh, as I move to the next bead, I remember, oh, I'm praying right now. I can come away from my distraction and back into the prayer. I make the next turn in the labyrinth and I'm like, oh, I'm praying right now. I'm going to bring my my mind wanderings back to this central focus of prayer or the same thing in the mass as we move from one section to the another or, or move out of one response into the next. It's an opportunity to say, oh, this is where I am right now and what my focus is supposed to be on. And so I'm going to take all of these other things that that have been distracting me and I'm going to bring them back and reorder them back towards this central relationship and dialogue between God and myself. Yeah. One of the practices I think that really helps um, facilitate that re-entry um, is the practice of praying with a sacred word. So centering mm-hmm. prayer. Um, that is precisely what centering prayer does. You, you choose a word or you choose a short phrase, and either you know you can think about it as setting aside 20 minutes or 30 minutes where primarily the goal is to sit in silence and just simply be with God in this, in this posture of contemplative prayer. Um, and then the sacred word becomes a way of re-centering exactly what it says it does. Um, when those distractions arise, you simply return to the word that you've chosen or the phrase that you've chosen. And it becomes this kind of touchstone in the conversation with God that you constantly return back to. Um, so there are a lot of different versions of this. You know, the, the simplest one among them, um, you know, we think many people are familiar with the Jesus prayer. Yeah. Um, and so the the there are a lot of different versions of this. Um, a lot of people might be familiar with the phrase, the sentence, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so it's a prayer that's kind of meant to align with the breath. But the absolute simplest version of this prayer is simply the name Jesus. Um, and it's just this point of encounter 
-hmm. not just with a name, not just with a word, not even just with the sound of a word, but it's a point of encounter with the person of Christ. Every time you return to the name of Jesus, it's an invitation to encounter. And so it becomes this way of continually um, aligning our heart and aligning our soul with with God throughout the day. Um, and so centering prayer, I think, is something that, you know, a lot of people today, um, many people practice meditation in varying forms. And, you know, there are there are perfectly wonderful, you know, more secular forms of meditation. Um, and for, for people who might be trying to engage in such a practice from a Christian or a Catholic standpoint, um, I think centering prayer, for me at least, has become something that I've turned to a lot more, um, particularly since since researching and writing this book, um, because I recognize that it is it is such a simple way to very quickly and very beautifully realign myself in any given moment. It can happen anywhere, at any point, at any time of day, um, no matter where you are. You know, you can be on an airplane and the person in the seat next to you might be like snoring or taking up your personal space or there might be an inconsolable child whose ears don't want to pop. And in that moment, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, gosh, like these people are the worst and there's like a real struggle to be charitable. And if you align your heart just by invoking the name of Jesus, it's an incredibly powerful way to pray in any circumstance in which you find yourself. And it's it's just been a really meaningful practice for me. Well, and and I love this idea of of using it not solely as I'm going to sit down and, and contemplate for 20 minutes, but as a as a re-entry point in the middle of a stressful situation or a really particularly distractible situation where it's not I'm going to do this for a long time. It's just here's that thing. I'm going to return back to my proper state and that proper relationship. Yeah, I mean I can think of difficult, you know, if you if you find yourself in the midst of a difficult conversation, whether it's with a spouse or a child or a coworker, all it takes is a nanosecond to pause before you respond in haste or in anger or in frustration. If you just pause and in that moment of pause, invoke the name of Jesus or think to yourself, "Come Holy Spirit," or think to yourself, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, you know, mm-hmm. something like that um, can can redirect and um, and remind you of whose you are and whose this person you're talking to is, um, if that makes sense. You, you yeah. can sort of reconnect with the fact that you're a child of God and you're talking to a child of God. And so maybe bringing God into the conversation is a way to move that conversation forward in a way that's that's charitable and grace-filled rather than um, something that is perhaps rooted in the, you know, the frustration of the moment or the impatience of the moment. So mm-hmm. the book is 10 Ways to Pray, a Catholic guide to, for drawing closer to God. It's available on Ave Maria Press, AveMariaPress.com. Uh, this is uh, just a fantastic book, really easy and accessible to get into, maybe a way of praying that you were previously unfamiliar with. Carolyn Pertle is the author. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Carolyn, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. 
All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you're looking for more, well, I've got good news. There is more. Always there is more. Uh, we record an extra segment each and every week that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air by helping to cover the costs of production and hosting and all of the other things that go into making a radio show. And in gratitude, we give them an extra segment with a couple extra questions with our guests and a deeper dive into the topic. Learn more over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link and peruse some of the older extra segments that are now open and available to the general public and consider being a part of that community. Now, Let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, magisterial documents, original language research, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. For our reading from Scripture today, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer, but not the version we're most familiar with that comes out of the book of Matthew. We're going to read out of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not subject us to the final test. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend to whom he goes at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived at my house from a journey, and I have nothing to offer him. And he says in reply from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children and I are already in bed. I cannot get up to give anything to you. I tell you, if he does not get up to give him the loaves because of their friendship, he will get up to give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. And I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish, or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If then you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. To expand on that passage today, our reading from church history comes from the book Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. When asking a favor of some person of importance, would anyone be so ill-mannered and thoughtless as not first to consider how best to address him in order to make a good impression and give him no cause for offense? Surely, he would think over his petition carefully and his reason for making it, especially if it were for something specific and important, as our good Jesus tells us our petitions should be. It seems to me that this point deserves serious attention. My Lord, could you not have included all in one word by saying, Father, give us whatever is good for us. 
After all, to the one who understands everything so perfectly, what need is there to say any more? O eternal wisdom between you and your Father, that was enough. That was how you prayed in the garden. You expressed your desire and fear, but surrendered yourself to his will. But as for us, my Lord, you know that we are less submissive to the will of your Father and need to mention each thing separately in order to stop and think whether it would be good for us, and otherwise not ask for it. You see, the gift our Lord intends for us may be by far the best, but if it is not what we wanted, we are quite capable of flinging it back in his face. That is the kind of people we are. Ready cash is the only wealth we understand. Therefore, the good Jesus bids us repeat these words, this prayer for his kingdom to come in us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. See how wise our master is. But what do we mean when we pray for this kingdom? That is what I'm going to consider now. For it is important that we should understand it. Our good Jesus placed these two petitions side by side because he realized that in our inadequacy, we could never fittingly hallow, praise, exalt, or glorify this holy name of the Eternal Father unless he enabled us to do so by giving us his kingdom here on earth. But since we must know what we are asking for, and how important it is to pray for it without ceasing, and to do everything in our power to please him who is to give it to us, I should now like to give my own thoughts on the matter. Of the many joys that are found in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest seems to me to be the sense of tranquility and well-being that we shall experience when we are free from all concern for earthly things. Glad because others are glad, and forever at peace, we shall have the deep satisfaction of seeing that by all creatures the Lord is honored and praised and his name blessed. No one ever offends him, for there everyone loves him. Loving him is the soul's one concern. Indeed, it cannot help but love him, for it knows him. Here below, our love must necessarily fall short of that perfection and constancy. But even so, how different it would be, how much more like that of heaven, if we really knew our Lord. That reading comes from the book Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. Speaking of the kingdom, Teresa says, For there everyone loves him. Loving him is the soul's one concern. Indeed, it cannot help but love him, for it knows him. And how much more like that of heaven would we be if we really knew our Lord? We come to know him through prayer, through experience of him on an ongoing basis and experiencing his faithfulness and his answer to those prayers. In gathering up all of our anxieties and all of the things that weigh heavily on our hearts and turning them over to, to God and saying, here are the concerns I have. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give to us, as St. Teresa said, that which is best for us. And that's how we come to know and grow in our love for God. 
That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Carrie Carlson and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link and learn more. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over at social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.